So being seated, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66, where we will begin this morning. Men and women have uh, always had an insatiable desire to know what's coming next, to know the future. And so we've created a lot of devices to figure out the future. It's called divination. A lot of different methodologies that we've figured out, like looking in the stars or interpreting our dreams or the patterns of clouds or the way that birds fly. Uh, Even as we mentioned earlier in the semester, uh, the way that the entrails of animals might fall out on the ground. There are all kinds of methodologies. Um, How we read uh, the tea leaves or the coffee grounds, which personally that works real well for me on Monday mornings. That's called tassiomancy, in case you were wondering. We also read fire and smoke. That's pyromancy. I liked that when I was a kid. Most creative one that I found was uh, gastromancy. Yeah, gastromancy. And gastromancy, that was invented by the Greeks, and then there were other cultures that used it. Uh, And what would happen is if you want to know the future, you'd go to the oracle, and you would put your ear on his intestinal tract, and you would listen for the sounds that were made inside of his digestive system because it was believed that the dead had inhabited his digestive system, and you could learn the future from their voices. Gastromancy. I thought that was pretty clever. Pretty creative. I hadn't tried that one yet. We, of course, are, are much smarter than that. We, uh, we rely on our, our experts, right? We rely on people who think. Okay, we're not just looking at the clouds, not just reading the tea leaves. People who think. There's a man named Philip Tetlock, professor at University of Pennsylvania in the 80s. He began a study, and he looked at over 27,000 forecasts that were made by almost 300 academics. And the forecasts related to major geopolitical events. Okay, would such and such an event be likely to happen in the future? So things like this. Would there be a nonviolent end to apartheid in South Africa? Would Gorbachev be ousted in a coup? Would the United States go to war in the Persian Gulf? He studied all of these prognostications, over 27,000 of them, and it was really complex studies statistically, but the final answer was very simple, and it was that the experts failed completely in being able to predict the future. As a matter of fact, statistically, they did not do uh, any better than a monkey putting all the probabilities up on a dartboard and throwing darts at the possible options, which I thought was just a wonderful conclusion to um, our money being spent on this research project. (laughs) We can't figure it out. We can guess, but we just don't know. Now, fortunately, as Christians, we are not left just with tea leaves or with monkeys throwing darts. We have the Word of God, right? We may not know absolutely every detail of what's going to happen. We don't know what the stock market's going to do tomorrow. We don't know if it's going to rain tomorrow. We don't know some of these specific details, but we do know where history is going. And we know how history will end. And on a personal level, we can know how we fit in and how that should affect our day-to-day decisions. That's wonderful news. It's incredible news. That is uh, the study of eschatology. And so this morning, what we are going to do is we're going to look at eschatology from Isaiah and the prophets all the way through the book of Revelation. And we're going to do that for a couple of reasons. First, uh, Isaiah being one of the major prophets has a lot to say about the future, but Isaiah can't say everything. Isaiah didn't have full information, and information is added as time goes on. There are things that Isaiah just couldn't pull apart. He couldn't discern. Peter tells us that the prophets longed to see some of the things that we see today and, and couldn't understand. Remember, 
a couple weeks ago, we talked about the, uh, the Messiah, God's servant. And in Isaiah's view, he's got these two kind of conflicting pictures. One is the suffering servant and the triumphant servant. And they're laid on top of one another, almost side by side, and they're mixed together. And Isaiah just can't pull them apart, so he just puts them right there, right next to each other. So for Isaiah, prophecy is a little bit like looking at a mountain range, and, and he sees the range, but he doesn't see that there are ranges beyond and valleys and so forth. And if he were able to get a better perspective, he'd look up and he'd see it's range after range and valley after valley. And there's, there's not just one coming of Christ, but a second coming of Christ. He'd have a better perspective. And for us, probably, once everything transpires, we'll realize we didn't even know as much as we thought we knew. The event will happen and we'll look back at the Bible and say, oh, well, of course, it was revealed. We just couldn't see it. So what we're going to try to do this morning is uh, to put together the best picture we can. And at the end of this whole discussion, I can promise you one thing. When it all goes down, we'll be surprised, right? We can't know everything, but we can look at what we do know, the eschaton, meaning end times, a study of end times. Now, uh, you should have received a bulletin as you came in this morning, and in the bulletin, there was an insert. It's a half a page visual synthesis of eschatology. And I will tell you, the last time I got to teach eschatology, I had a week. I had six hours a day for five days to cover this topic. So, hang on. (laughs) I'm not going to keep you real long. That's not what that means. It means I'm going to move real fast. And I won't cover everything. You'll notice in this chart that I've given you, uh, there are four major epics that we will... um, be flying through. The church age, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. That's where we are right now. The tribulation period, messianic kingdom, and the new heavens and new earth or eternity. And I've changed the terminology a little bit on this slide because I didn't get a chance to edit completely before we went to print. Um, Tribulation, it says on yours, great tribulation. Personally, I think the great tribulation is the second half of that seven-year period. Messianic kingdom is a better Old Testament description. Now, uh, before I move on, did anybody fail to get a handout? Do you need one? If so, raise your hand. Some of our deacons have some. Okay, got a few over here. Anybody else? Keep your hand up for just a minute. The other thing is, uh, all the slides are going to be on the website. And at the very end of the slides, I'm not going to put it up this morning, but I've got one that's that's got like 100 scripture references. So you can go back this week if you want to study in a little more depth and get into it. Okay? So, what's first? First thing that we can expect in God's kingdom program, what's going to happen next, is a period of tribulation. If you look at the Old Testament, there's a phrase called the day of the Lord. Sometimes it's just the day or that day. And what it is talking about is a whole series of events during which God dramatically breaks into human history and begins this process of setting all things right. It's not a single day. It's not 24 hours. It's a whole bunch of events stretched over a long period of time. But it's God's dramatic intervention in human history. And it's not that God has ceased to be involved right now. But during the day or the day of the Lord, he is going to intervene in a very dramatic way. And the first thing that we're going to see historically is a period of tribulation on the earth. Read with me in chapter 66 and verse 14. It says, Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad. 
And your bones will flourish like the new grass, and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, and he will be indignant toward his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger, his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many." During the tribulation, it will be a period of wrath. It'll be a period in which God begins the process of removing those who hate him from his earth. In Matthew chapter 24, Matthew describes it like this. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. There is tribulation on the earth now. There's famine and earthquakes and disease. All kinds of things happen. But during the tribulation period, it will be like nothing that's ever been seen before. And if God had not chosen to relent, it would have wiped out all of humanity. You read the book of Revelation, and, and, and fully three quarters of the book of Revelation is about this period of tribulation, beginning chapter 6 all the way up through chapter 18. John is given this vision, and in his vision, he sees tribulation unfolding in a series of events, and he calls them seals and trumpets and bowls. And if I understand the book of Revelation correctly, which it's highly likely I don't, but my my best understanding is that Revelation is, in a sense, like a telescope, okay? The seals come out first, and there are seven of them. And as they come out, the seventh seal reveals the seven trumpets. Okay, Seven trumpets come out. The seventh trumpet is the seven bowls. Okay, And then that seventh bowl is the climax, and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse on the earth. And what God is doing on the earth is he is progressively removing those who have said, no, God, we hate you and you will not rule over us. They are described in the book of Revelation as, quote-unquote, those who dwell on the earth. They don't want God's rule over them. Now, according to the book of Daniel, this period is going to last for seven years. I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25. Remember in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is, uh, he's distressed and he wants to know the future. Just like us. He says, God, what is going to happen? What's going to happen to the holy city, Jerusalem? Remember, Daniel is in exile. He is in Babylon. He's outside of his nation. He says, what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem? What's going to happen to the temple that's been destroyed? God, what's going to happen to your people? And he's fasting and he's praying and he's waiting and he doesn't get an answer. And finally, Gabriel comes and gives him an answer. Let's read in verse 25. This is Gabriel speaking to Daniel. He says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, okay, historical point in time, a decree will be issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We talked about that earlier in our study in Isaiah. Cyrus issued that decree. No, actually Cyrus didn't, excuse me. Uh, Artaxerxes issued that decree. Cyrus issued the decree later to rebuild temple. Artaxerxes issued the decree to rebuild the city in 444 BC, March 5th, okay? So, Daniel's told specifically from the point of the issuing of that decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That is a period of 69 weeks. 
It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. 69 weeks are 69 periods of seven years. A week in Daniel's terminology is seven years. So he says there will be approximately 483 years from the issuing of this decree on March 5th, 444 BC, until Messiah shows up in Jerusalem. And we're told that 483 years later, Messiah showed up, and that was the triumphal entry, okay? the exact date of triumphal entry. He walked into Jerusalem. A few days later, Messiah was cut off, verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, that is after you've had the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks, or 483 years, the Messiah will be cut off, which he was. A few days later, he was crucified. And he will have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, that is, the one who is the Antichrist, his people, okay? that is, the Romans at that point in time, occupied by his spirit, which will reject God. They will destroy the city and the sanctuary, which they did in AD 70. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, Daniel was told this whole process is going to take place over 70 weeks. We've only had... 69 weeks. And Daniel and Isaiah didn't understand that between week 69 and week 70, there would be this gap. That's where we live right now. Not an accident. It wasn't an afterthought by God. It was his predetermined plan that he would build his church. But he didn't explain ahead of time in the Old Testament that there would be this gap between week 69 and 70. And so what is left? One more week, one more week, or a seven-year period. Now, that final seven-year period is described in verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant, that is, the Antichrist. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This is what he's saying. An antichrist will emerge. And remember, anti means not just against Messiah. It means instead of or in place of Messiah. Israel has been looking for her Messiah. She's looking for her Messiah today. Longing for her Messiah. There will come a man who will proclaim, in essence, that he is that man. He is Messiah. And he will offer to make a covenant with them. He will sign an agreement with them. And it's going to be a miraculous agreement because he's going to actually be able to create peace in the Middle East. He will allow Israel to once again sacrifice on the Temple Mount. Now, what is on the Temple Mount right now? What's there right now? You know? You got a mosque and a memorial. Okay, The Al-Aqsa Mosque, that's an operating mosque. And then the Dome of the Rock is a memorial to apparently where, uh, supposedly where, according to Muslims, Muhammad ascended into heaven. Okay, Which is most likely the place where the temple was. Now, somehow this Messiah is going to make a covenant, an agreement with Israel and placate the Arabs that allows some form of a temple to be rebuilt and sacrifices to go up again. And the Jews are going to say, obviously, this man is Messiah. Okay, he's the anointed one. He has brought peace to us and peace between us and the Arabs. And he's allowed us to sacrifice again. But then in the middle of that seven-year period, he's going to break this seven-year covenant. He's going to cut off all their sacrifices. 
And then he's going to begin to persecute the Jews tremendously. And it is that second half of the tribulation period that's called Jacob's distress or the great tribulation. And the Jews are going to realize suddenly we have been completely betrayed. This man is not the Christ. He is not the Messiah. He's a traitor. He's persecuting us. He's killing us. And now they will be so receptive to God's Messiah. They will be longing for God to send the true Messiah to them. They will be spiritually receptive to that point. Now, I don't know if you have been watching events in the Middle East, but you should. As a Christian, you should be paying attention to what's going on there. Uh, this last week, I was reading an article about the, uh, the protests in Syria. And, you know, Syria has typically been very strongly aligned against the nation of Israel. Well, they were interviewing one of the protesters, and he said, he said, you know what, we long for more than anything. We want to get rid of Assad, and we want democracy. And if we can get rid of Assad and have democracy, we'd rather have that and have a good relationship with Israel than to keep Assad. Wow. I don't know that that statement has ever come out of the mouth of anyone from Syria before. I don't know what's going to happen in the Middle East, but boy, it's really interesting. There's so much turmoil among the Arab world. They're longing for peace. The Jews are feeling more threatened than ever from Iran. Iran sending arms to all the nations around them. And you don't realize how close things are right there. I've been up on the Golan Heights and you can just look over into Syria. It's just right there. Everyone's longing for peace. Could this be the time? I don't know. Maybe in our generation. But the point is, when Antichrist comes, he will trick them. He will make a covenant, but then he'll break it. And they will long for Messiah. So the second thing that will transpire in in the tribulation period is Israel will be brought to repentance. They will finally recognize that Jesus, in fact, is their Messiah. Look at verse 24 in Daniel chapter 9. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, Daniel, it will be this 70-week period or 70 periods of seven years for Israel to stop sinning and for final atonement to be made for all of their sins And for everlasting righteousness to be brought in, that is, in my opinion, the first and foremost purpose of the tribulation period to bring Israel to a point of repentance. So Antichrist makes covenant with them, breaks covenant with them. They are receptive and longing for Messiah, particularly because they are so persecuted. And then they see Jesus. And they accept him as Messiah. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the conclusion to this period, Paul describes in Romans chapter 11. He says this. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. And Paul is writing to a primarily non-Jewish or Gentile people. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until, all the, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. What he's saying is, you, you Gentiles, you who are the predominant members of the church, don't be proud against Israel. Recognize God has chosen to harden them for a time so that he can bring in all nations as he had promised to Abraham. But once he finishes that work of bringing in all nations, he's going to turn back to Israel 
and he's going to lead Israel to a point of national repentance. And they will accept Jesus as their Messiah. Now, one more event that happens that is related to this period of time, it's not necessarily a part of the tribulation, but it's related to this time, is uh, the rapture. And it's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And that word caught up is, in Greek, the word from which we get rapture. We'll be caught up. In my opinion, this rapture or this catching up of the church, removing us from the earth, happens before the tribulation period begins. Now, there's a lot of debate about it, uh, a lot of disagreement. At the end of the day, um, you're still saved if you disagree with me, it's okay. But I think it happens at the beginning of the tribulation period. I don't think it happens at the middle. I don't think it happens at the end. I don't think just some Christians are raptured. I think the whole church is raptured right at the beginning for a variety of reasons. First, uh, the church is caught up and Christ doesn't come to the earth. In the second coming, Christ comes to the earth. Second, the rapture will be a surprise, we are told. Okay? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. It's a shock. It's a surprise. But if it happens at the middle of the tribulation, it's going to be much less of a surprise. Tribulation begins with the signing of the covenant. Okay? If it's the middle of the tribulation, which is when the greater wrath or tribulation starts, it's going to be a little more predictable. I think the rapture is a surprise best thing that fits with a surprise is right at the beginning. This, in my opinion, is the next event that's going to happen in salvation history. We're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Okay? So the church is pulled out. And really, maybe the most powerful reason, in my opinion, is that the purposes of the tribulation period don't apply to the church. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel tells us the tribulation is about getting Israel prepared to receive Messiah and have her sins atoned for. Well, we've already believed in Jesus as Messiah. And our sins have been paid for in him. We've accepted that. The other purpose of the tribulation period is God pouring out wrath on those who reject him and hate him. Well, we don't. We believe in him. So I think he saves or rescues, as he says in 1 Thessalonians, delivers us from the wrath to come. We're taken away. Okay? But at the end of the day, bottom line is this. Whether it happens pre, mid, post, pre-wrath, sometime in between. It's just going to be a surprise. I think it'll be really cool. Can't wait for that to happen. Could happen right now. Okay. Next event is the Messianic kingdom. What brings the tribulation to a close and begins God's kingdom upon earth is the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. Okay. Second coming of Christ to the earth. Zechariah describes it in chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So they go through the tribulation period, particularly the second half in which they've been betrayed. Many of them have died. And then they see Jesus Christ coming on the clouds and they look on him whom they have pierced and they see his scars and they recognize he was Messiah and we rejected him. And that is when this national repentance and conversion occurs. 
And all Israel, as Paul says in Romans 11, will be saved. They will turn to God at the second coming. Turn with me for a fuller description to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Who are these armies? It's believers. Okay? Fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Okay? We are coming with him to rule and to reign. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying all the, to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may, may eat the flesh of kings, flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free, free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So on one side you have Jesus Christ seated on his white horse and all of his faithful believers assembled to, make, to wage war against the Antichrist and against all of his forces. Verse 20. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. Those who had worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest of the army were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The battle, in other words, is completely anticlimactic. <laughs> okay? We're all lined up to do battle. And all of Satan's evil forces are amassed against us, and then Jesus says, You're dead. And that's it. And that's the end of the battle. It's just like that, okay? Now, let me dispel a myth. Sometimes we think as the church, what's going on right now in this great cosmic conflict is that God is fighting Satan, right? Let me think, this is the cosmic conflict. God and Satan are going at it, right? No, they're not going at it, okay? Satan and God's people are going at it. Because God is trying to demonstrate his power by conquering Satan through weak and frail people like us when we are completely dependent upon him and we recognize we have no strength on our own and we still take Satan to task when we resist temptation and we live righteously and we proclaim the gospel even though we're under attack by this more powerful enemy. God and Satan is not a fair fight, right? God just speaks and he's gone. God, God is not battling Satan right now. There, there would be no battle. It's like Brian's fighting Mike Tyson today. No, that's not a battle. Nobody shows up because it's one punch, you're out. That's God and Satan. So when Jesus finally steps in, the battle lasts a second. And then he's, all, he's wiped out. All, all of our adversaries are wiped out. So what God is doing right now is he is battling through us. 
He's not battling Satan. He's allowing us to battle on his behalf. And so our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the powers, the world forces of this present darkness that is spiritual warfare. But someday, God will intervene directly in human history. And in a moment, he will wipe out all of his enemies. That is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, we call it a millennial kingdom. Because in the book of Revelation, we're told that it lasts for a thousand years. Look at chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death, that is permanent separation from God, has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. I call it the messianic kingdom. Because basically everything that we're looking at here in prophecy is a fulfillment of Old Testament, Old Covenant, previously covenanted promises made through Israel to all of the nations. We have further revelation that tells us this particular period of the unfolding of God's history for humans lasts a thousand years. And so for a thousand years, men and women will reign with Jesus Christ on earth for a thousand years. All of these things are fulfillments of covenants. God made four primary covenants with the nation of Israel. Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New. The Abrahamic covenant promised that Abraham would have a land, an area. And within that land, he would populate with his people that would come forth from him, his seed. And that he would be blessed spiritually as well as physically. It's the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was given so that each generation could know how can we enjoy those blessings on the land, materially and physically. If we obey, we'll be blessed. If we disobey, well, then we'll be cursed. And if we keep disobeying, God's going to discipline us and discipline us. He might even have to remove us from the land. But he will preserve the seed and bring us back. He'll bring a remnant back so that they can occupy the land and enjoy the blessings. Well, what happened? Generation after generation after generation failed. God added another covenant, which was the Davidic covenant, which told them who is that particular seed from Abraham who will lead us to obey God perfectly so that he can give us all the blessings came from the line of David, and we know it is Jesus Christ. Okay? The new covenant superseded the Mosaic covenant because it allowed for the people to have power to obey God so that he could bless. How? New Covenant allows for the complete removal of sins and the indwelling of God's Spirit. And so it says in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be able finally to obey. So the entire foundation for all of these promises being fulfilled has been laid. Jesus Christ has come. Seed of Abraham, seed of David. He has completely obeyed the Mosaic law. It didn't fail in one point. He has paid for all the sins that were committed under the Mosaic law and all sins that would be committed subsequently to the law. As a result, he has set aside the law and the book of Hebrews tells us the law is now obsolete and we have a new covenant through which we operate. The new covenant gives us forgiveness of sins and the indwelling spirit. But all of the provisions of the new covenant haven't been put in place yet. 
Israel hasn't been regathered to the land. Okay? All their enemies haven't been wiped out. God's son, Jesus, the son of David, isn't sitting on the throne. We're waiting for all those things to happen. So as we look to future events, all that we're looking for are the fulfillment of the covenant promises. So what is this going to look like? Well, Paul summarizes in Romans 11. He says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And what he's talking about there are the covenant promises. God will not revoke his promises through Israel to all nations. Okay, let me describe it for you briefly. Okay, I want to focus on just three aspects that are highlighted in the book of Isaiah. But if you get online later on today or this week, uh, at the very end of this set of slides, there's a long list. I've given you, like I said, 40, 50 verses. You can go through and look up. Let me focus on just three. The nation will be regathered. Okay? What is amazing is that Israel ethnically still exists in the world. After you know pogroms and the Holocaust, the fact that you have people who are racially, ethnically Jews and know it, they still exist. It is an absolute miracle that they have not been obliterated. The seed still exists, but they are everywhere in the world. Well, God is going to reach out and he is going to gather them. Isaiah talks a lot about this. And he's going to reunite those who came from the northern tribes and those who came from the southern tribes, and they will once again be one nation. He can regather them because they will finally, having believed in Messiah, approach him through the new covenant, not the old covenant. And through the new covenant, they will experience finally the forgiveness of all of their sins, the law written upon their heart, the indwelling spirit of God who empowers them to obey so that God can bless. Jerusalem will be at the center of the world. It will be lifted up. And this city, Zion, will be the center. All the nations will stream to it. Its gates will never close. The wealth of the nations will come into it. And we are told later, uh, Isaiah doesn't really see a good picture of this, but what will happen after the end of the millennial kingdom is God will remake everything. It's called new heavens and new earth. Isaiah describes it, Isaiah chapter 65. And in the new heavens and new earth, we're told in the book of Revelation, Jerusalem is remade. And the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and occupies earth. And God's presence is finally among people. God's son, Jesus Christ, is seated on the throne and David is seated next to him. What does all this look like? Well, let's look at it. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. This is the final chapter, so to speak. John writes, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is new heavens and new earth. And we're told in the book of Isaiah, as well as in the book of Revelation, there will no longer be a sun and a moon. There's no longer any need. Because the presence of God will illumine them. 
This is what God ultimately had in store for all of creation and all of mankind. This beautiful vision of God living with us. No, No barrier, no conflict in our relationship with him. No conflicts in our relationships with one another. No more curse. No more sorrow. No more pain. No more decay. No more death. All the former things are passed away. And we will no longer grieve again. The overwhelming vision of this final kingdom of God on earth is that of joy. Okay? Absolute and perfect joy. How do you apply this? Let me give you a few ideas that I meditated on this week as I was going through it. First, don't expect this world to be perfect. All of your joy and all of your pleasure cannot be found in this world, and you will wear yourself out trying to find it here. It's broken. That's why God promises to remake the whole thing. Okay? And it is in our foolishness that we don't have vision to look beyond. Men and women, we're given the end of the story. Okay? Look at it, meditate upon it, rejoice in it, and give thanks for it. And don't spend all of your energy saying, I must find all pleasure, all joy right now. It'll leave you empty. Okay? Second, we have incredible cause for hope. And as a result, we have an incredible message of hope. Sometimes I, I, I just stop when I'm spending time with the Lord. I just stop and I'm amazed. I say, God, I cannot believe that I get it. I understand how to have forgiveness of my sins, but not just that. I understand why I'm here, why I exist. I have this wonderful message of hope that I can deliver to people, that their sins can be removed and that they can have life that lasts forever and they can have meaning and purpose right now. Men and women, we have the greatest gift to share. And when we see this whole picture painted out before us, you know, it doesn't really matter what the stock market's going to do tomorrow. It's going to go up, it's going to go down, I promise, one or the other. Okay, let's ride it out. And let's live for eternity. And as we're living for eternity, let's gather. Because that's what God is about. Gathering men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to be with him forever. In absolute and perfect joy. And let's not miss that opportunity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have not left us in the dark. You have not hidden your plans from us. You have not given us every detail, but you have given us so much We know where world history is going. We know why we are here. And I pray, Father, that you would give us courage and boldness and joy in sharing that message with others. Father, I do thank you that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and its penalty and its separation. And I thank you that he has conquered death, proving that through his resurrection. Father, I thank you that we can live without fear but in hope. It is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.